Section 5 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1889-1892. to This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Thomas. Section 5. Benjamin Harrison. December 9, 1891. Part 1. To the Senate and House of Representatives. The reports of the heads of the several executive departments required by law to be submitted to me, which are herewith transmitted, and the reports of the Secretary of the Treasury and the Attorney General, made directly to Congress, furnish a comprehensive view of the administrative work of the last fiscal year relating to internal affair. It would be of great advantage if these reports could have an alternative perusal by every member of Congress and by all who take an interest in public affairs. Such a perusal could not fail to excite a higher appreciation of the vast labor and conscientious effort which are given to the conduct of our civil administration. The reports will, I believe, show that every question has been approached, considered, and decided from the standpoint of public duty upon considerations affecting the public interests alone. Again, I invite to every branch of the service the attention and scrutiny of Congress. The work of the State Department during the last year has been characterized by an unusual number of important negotiations and by diplomatic results of a notable and highly beneficial character. Among these are the reciprocal trade arrangements which have been concluded, in the exercise of the powers conferred by Section 3 of the Tariff Law, with the Republic of Brazil, with Spain for its West India possessions, and with Santo Domingo. Like negotiations with other countries have been much advanced, and it is hoped that before the close of the year further definitive trade arrangements of great value will be concluded. In view of the reports which have been received as to the diminution of seal herds in the Bering Sea, I deemed it wise to propose to Her Majesty's Government in February last that an agreement for a closed season should be made, pending the negotiations for arbitration, which then seemed to be approaching a favorable conclusion. After much correspondence and delays, for which this government was not responsible, an agreement was reached and signed on the 15th of June, by which Great Britain undertook from that date until May 1, 1892, to prohibit the killing of her subjects of seals in the Bering Sea, and the government of the United States during the same period to enforce its existing prohibition against pelagic sealing and to limit the catch by the fur seal company upon the islands to 7,500 skins. If this agreement could have been reached earlier in response to the strenuous endeavors of this government, it would have been more effective. But, coming even as late as it did, it unquestionably resulted in greatly diminishing the destruction of the seals by the Canadian sealers. In my last annual message, I stated that the basis of arbitration proposed by Her Majesty's Government for the adjustment of the long-pending controversy as to the seal fisheries was not acceptable. I am glad now to be able to announce 
that terms satisfactory to this government have been agreed upon, and that an agreement as to the arbitrators is all that is necessary to the completion of the Convention. In view of the advanced position which this government has taken upon the subject of international arbitration, this renewed expression of our adherence to this method for the settlement of disputes such as have arisen in the Bering Sea will, I doubt not, meet with the concurrence of Congress. Provision should be made for a joint demarcation of the frontier line between Canada and the United States wherever required by the increasing border settlements, and especially for the exact location of the water boundary in the straits and rivers. I should have been glad to announce some favorable disposition of the boundary dispute between Great Britain and Venezuela, touching the western frontier of British Guyana, but the friendly efforts of the United States in that direction have thus far been unavailing. This government will continue to express its concern at any appearance of foreign encroachment on territories long under the administrative control of American states. The determination of a disputed boundary is easily attainable by amicable arbitration, where the rights of the respective parties rest, as here, on historic facts readily ascertainable. The law of the last Congress, providing a system of inspection for our meats intended for export, and clothing the President with power to exclude foreign products from our market in case the country sending them should perpetuate unjust discriminations against any product of the United States, placed this government in a position to effectively urge the removal of such discriminations against our meats. It is gratifying to be able to state that Germany, Denmark, Italy, Austria, and France, in the order named, have opened their ports to inspected American pork products. The removal of these restrictions in every instance was asked for and given solely upon the ground that we have now provided a meat inspection that should be accepted as adequate to the complete removal of the dangers, real or fancied, which had been previously urged. The State Department, our ministers abroad, and the Secretary of Agriculture have cooperated with unflagging and intelligent zeal for the accomplishment of this great result. The outlines of an agreement have been reached with Germany looking to equitable trade concessions in consideration of the continued free importation of her sugars, but the time has not yet arrived when this correspondence can be submitted to Congress. The recent political disturbances in the Republic of Brazil have excited regret and solicitude. The information we possessed was too meager to enable us to form a satisfactory judgment of the causes leading to the temporary assumption of supreme power by President Fonseca, but this government did not fail to express to him its anxious solicitude for the peace of Brazil and for the maintenance of the free political institutions which had recently been established there, nor to offer our advice that great moderation should be observed in the clash of parties and the contest for leadership. These counsels were received in the most friendly spirit, and the latest information 
is that constitutional government has been reestablished without bloodshed. The lynching at New Orleans in March last of 11 men of Italian nativity by a mob of citizens was a most deplorable and discreditable incident. It did not, however, have its origin in any general animosity to the Italian people, nor in any disrespect to the government of Italy, with which our relations were of the most friendly character. The fury of the mob was directed against these men as the supposed participants or accessories in the murder of a city officer. I do not allude to this as mitigating in any degree this offense against law and humanity, but only as affecting the international questions which grew out of it. It was at once represented by the Italian minister that several of those whose lives had been taken by the mob were Italian subjects, and a demand was made for the punishment of the participants and for an indemnity to the families of those who were killed. It is to be regretted that the manner in which these claims were presented was not such as to promote a calm discussion of the questions involved, but this may well be attributed to the excitement and indignation which the crime naturally evoked. The views of this government as to its obligations to foreigners domiciled here were fully stated in the correspondence, as well as its purpose to make an investigation of the affair with a view to determine whether there were present any circumstances that could, under such rules of duty as we had indicated, create an obligation upon the United States. The temporary absence of a minister plenipotentiary of Italy at this capital has retarded the further correspondence, but it is not doubted that a friendly conclusion is attainable. Some suggestions growing out of this unhappy incident are worthy the attention of Congress. It would, I believe, be entirely competent for Congress to make offenses against the treaty rights of foreigners domiciled in the United States cognizable in the federal courts. This has not, however, been done, and the federal officers and courts have no power in such cases to intervene, either for the protection of a foreign citizen or for the punishment of his slayers. It seems to me to follow, in this state of the law, that the officers of the state charged with police and judicial powers in such cases must, in the consideration of international questions growing out of such incidents, be regarded in such sense as federal agents as to make this government answerable for their acts in cases where it would be answerable if the United States had used its constitutional power to define and punish crime against treaty rights. The Civil War in Chile, which began in January last, was continued, but fortunately with infrequent and not important armed collisions, until August 28th, when the Congressional forces landed near Valparaiso and, after a bloody engagement, captured that city. President Balmaceda at once recognized that his cause was lost, and a provisional government was speedily established by the victorious party. Our minister was promptly directed to recognize and put himself in communication with this government, 
so soon as it should have established its de facto character, which was done. During the pendency of this civil contest, frequent indirect appeals were made to this government to extend belligerent rights to the insurgents and to give audience to their representatives. This was declined, and that policy was pursued, throughout which this government, when wrenched by civil war, so strenuously insisted upon on the part of European nations. The Itata, an armed vessel commanded by a naval officer of the insurgent fleet, manned by its sailors and with soldiers on board, was seized under process of the United States Court at San Diego, California, for a violation of our neutrality laws. While in the custody of an officer of the court, the vessel was forcibly wrested from his control and put to sea. It would have been inconsistent with the dignity and self-respect of this government not to have insisted that the Etata should not be returned to San Diego to abide the judgment of the court. This was so clear to the junta of the Congressional Party, established at Iquique, that before the arrival of the Itata at the port of the Secretary of Foreign Relations of the Provisional Government addressed to Rear Admiral Brown, commanding the United States Naval Forces, a communication from which the following is an extract. The Provisional Government has learned by the cablegrams of the Associated Press that the transport Itata, detained in San Diego by order of the United States for taking on board munitions of war, and, in possession of the marshal, left the port, carrying on board this official, who was landed at a point near the coast, and then continued her voyage. If this news be correct, this government would deplore the conduct of the Itata, and as an evidence that it is not disposed to support or agree to the infraction of the laws of the United States, the undersigned takes advantage of the personal relations you have been good enough to maintain with him since your arrival in this port to declare to you that as soon as she is within reach of our orders, his government will put the Itata with the arms and munitions she took on board in San Diego at the disposition of the United States. A trial in the District Court of the United States for the Southern District of California has recently resulted in a decision holding, among other things, that inasmuch as the Congressional Party had not been recognized as a belligerent, the acts done in its interest could not be a violation of our neutrality laws. From this judgment, the United States has appealed, not that the condemnation of the vessel is a matter of importance, but that we may know what the present state of our law is. For if this construction of the statute is correct, there is obvious necessity for revision and amendment. During the progress of the war in Chile, this government tendered its good offices to bring about a peaceful adjustment, and it was at one time hoped that a good result might be reached, but in this we were disappointed. The instructions to our naval officers and to our minister at Santiago, from the first to the last of this struggle, enjoined upon them the most impartial treatment and absolute non-interference. I am satisfied that these instructions were observed and that our representatives were always watchful to use their influence impartially in the interest of humanity, and on more than one occasion did so effectively. 
We could not forget, however, that this government was in diplomatic relations with the then-established government of Chile, as it is now in such relations with the successor of that government. I am quite sure that President Montt, who has, under circumstances of promise for the peace of Chile, been installed as president of that republic, will not desire that in the unfortunate event of any revolt against his authority, the policy of this government should be other than that which we have recently observed. No official complaint of the conduct of our minister or of our naval officers during the struggle has been presented to this government, and it is a matter of regret that so many of our own people should have given ear to unofficial charges and complaints that manifestly had their origin in rival interests and in a wish to pervert the relations of the United States with Chile. The collapse of the government of Balmaceda brought about a condition which is unfortunately too familiar in the history of the Central and South American states. With the overthrow of the Balmaceda government, he and many of his counselors and officers became at once fugitives for their lives and appealed to the commanding officers of the foreign naval vessels in the harbor of Valparaiso and to the resident foreign ministers at Santiago for asylum. This asylum was freely given, according to my information, by the naval vessels of several foreign powers and by several of the legations at Santiago. The American minister, as well as his colleagues, acting upon the impulse of humanity, extended asylum to political refugees whose lives were in peril. I have not been willing to direct the surrender of such of these persons as are still in the American legation without suitable conditions. It is believed that the government of Chile is not in a position, in view of the precedents with which it has been connected, to broadly deny the right of asylum, and the correspondence has not thus far presented any such denial. The treatment of our minister for a time was such as to call for a decided protest, and it was very gratifying to observe that unfriendly measures, which were undoubtedly the result of the prevailing excitement, were at once rescinded or suitably relaxed. On the 16th of October, an event occurred in Valparaiso, so serious and tragic in its circumstances and results as to very justly excite the indignation of our people and to call for prompt and decided action on the part of this government. A considerable number of the sailors of the United States steamship Baltimore, then in the harbor at Valparaiso, being upon shore leave and unarmed, were assaulted by armed men nearly simultaneously in different localities in the city. One petty officer was killed outright, and seven or eight seamen were seriously wounded, one of whom has since died. So savage and brutal was the assault that several of our sailors received more than two and one as many as eighteen stab wounds. An investigation of the affair was promptly made by a board of officers of the Baltimore, and their report shows that these assaults were unprovoked, that our men were conducting themselves in a peaceable and orderly manner, and that some of the police of the city took part in the assault and used their weapons with fatal effect, while a few others, with some well-disposed citizens, endeavored to protect our men. Thirty-six of our sailors were arrested, 
and some of them, while being taken to prison, were cruelly beaten and maltreated. The fact that they were all discharged, no criminal charge being lodged against any one of them, shows very clearly that they were innocent of any breach of the peace. So far as I have yet been able to learn, no other explanation of this bloody work has been suggested than that it had its origin in hostility to those men as sailors of the United States, wearing the uniform of their government, and not in any individual act or personal animosity. The attention of the Chilean government was at once called to this affair, and a statement of the facts obtained by the investigation we had conducted was submitted, accompanied by a request to be advised of any other or qualifying facts in the possession of the Chilean government that might tend to relieve this affair of the appearance of an insult to this government. The Chilean government was also advised that if such qualifying facts did not exist, this government would confidently expect full and prompt reparation. It is to be regretted that the reply of the Secretary for Foreign Affairs of the Provisional Government was couched in an offensive tone. To this, no response has been made. This government is now awaiting the result of an investigation which has been conducted by the criminal court at Valparaiso. It is reported unofficially that the investigation is about completed, and it is expected that the result will soon be communicated to this government, together with some adequate and satisfactory response to the note by which the attention of Chile was called to this incident. If these just expectations should be disappointed or further needless delay intervene, I will, by a special message, bring this matter again to the attention of Congress for such action as may be necessary. The entire correspondence with the government of Chile will, at an early day, be submitted to Congress. I renew the recommendation of my special message, dated January 16, 1890, for the adoption of the necessary legislation to enable this government to apply, in the case of Sweden and Norway, the same rule in respect to the levying of tonnage dues as was claimed and secured to the shipping of the United States in 1828 under Article 8 of the Treaty of 1827. The adjournment of the Senate, without action, on the pending acts for the suppression of the slave traffic in Africa and for the reform of the revenue tariff of the independent state of the Congo, left this government unable to exchange those acts on the date fixed, July 2, 1891. A modus vivende has been concluded by which the power of the Congo state to levy duties on imports is left unimpaired, and by agreement of all the signatories to the General Slave Trade Act, the time for the exchange of ratifications on the part of the United States has been extended to February 2, 1892. The late outbreak against foreigners in various parts of the Chinese Empire has been a cause of deep concern in view of the numerous establishments of our citizens in the interior of that country. This government can do no less than insist upon a continuance of the protective and punitory measures which the Chinese government has herefore applied. 
No effort will be omitted to protect our citizens peaceably sojourning in China, but recent unofficial information indicates that what was at first regarded as an outbreak of mob violence against foreigners has assumed the larger form of an insurrection against public order. The Chinese government has declined to receive Mr. Blair as the Minister of the United States on the ground that as a participant while a senator in the enactment of the existing legislation against the introduction of Chinese laborers, he has become unfriendly and objectionable to China. I have felt constrained to point out to the Chinese government the untenableness of this position, which seems to rest as much on the unacceptability of our legislation as on that of the person chosen, and which, if admitted, would practically debar the selection of any representative so long as the existing laws remain in force. You will be called upon to consider the expediency of making special provision by law for the temporary admission of some Chinese artisans and laborers in connection with the exhibit of Chinese industries at the approaching Columbian Exposition. I regard it as desirable that the Chinese exhibit be facilitated in every proper way. A question has arisen with the government of Spain touching the rights of American citizens in the Caroline Islands. Our citizens there, long prior to the confirmation of Spain's claim to the islands, had secured by settlement and purchased certain rights to the recognition and maintenance of which the faith of Spain was pledged. I have had reason within the past year very strongly to protest against the failure to carry out this pledge on the part of His Majesty's ministers, which has resulted in great injustice and injury to the American residents. The government and people of Spain propose to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the discovery of America by holding an exhibition at Madrid, which will open on the 12th of September and continue until the 31st of December, 1892. A cordial invitation has been extended to the United States to take part in this commemoration, and, as Spain was one of the first nations to express the intention to participate in the world's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, it would be very appropriate for this government to give this invitation its friendly promotion. Surveys for the connecting links of the projected Intercontinental Railway are in progress, not only in Mexico, but at various points along the course mapped out. Three surveying parties are now in the field under the direction of the Commission. Nearly 1,000 miles of the proposed road have been surveyed, including the most difficult part, that through Ecuador and the southern part of Colombia. The reports of the engineers are very satisfactory and show that no insurmountable obstacles have been met with. On November 12th, 1884, a treaty was concluded with Mexico reaffirming the boundary between the two countries as described in the treaties of February 2, 1848 and December 30, 1853. March 1, 1889, a further treaty was negotiated to facilitate the carrying out of the principles of the Treaty of 1884 and to avoid the difficulties occasioned by reason 
of the changes and alterations that take place from natural causes in the Rio Grande and Colorado rivers in the portions thereof, constituting the boundary line between the two republics. The International Boundary Commission, provided for by the Treaty of 1889, to have exclusive jurisdiction of any question that may arise, has been named by the Mexican government. An appropriation is necessary to enable the United States to fulfill its treaty obligations in this respect. The death of King Kalakaua in the United States afforded occasion to testify our friendship for Hawaii by conveying the king's body to his own land in a naval vessel with all due honors. The government of his successor, Queen Lili Holani, is seeking to promote closer commercial relations with the United States. Surveys for the much-needed submarine cable from our Pacific coast to Honolulu are in progress, and this enterprise should have the suitable promotion of the two governments. I strongly recommend that provision be made for improving the harbor of Pearl River and equipping it as a naval station. The Arbitration Treaty, formulated by the International American Conference, lapsed by reason of the failure to exchange ratifications fully within the limit of time provided. But several of the governments concerned have expressed a desire to save this important result of the conference by an extension of the period. It is, in my judgment, incumbent upon the United States to conserve the influential initiative it has taken in this measure by ratifying the instrument and by advocating the proposed extension of the time for exchange. These views have been made known to other signatories. This government has found occasion to express in a friendly spirit, but with much earnestness, to the government of the Tsar its serious concern because of the harsh measures now being enforced against the Hebrews in Russia. By the revival of anti-Semitic laws, long in abeyance, great numbers of those unfortunate people have been constrained to abandon their homes and leave the empire by reason of the impossibility of finding subsistence within the pale to which it is sought to confine them. The immigration of these people to the United States, many other countries being closed to them, is largely increasing and is likely to assume proportions which make it difficult to find homes and employment for them here and to seriously affect the labor market. It is estimated that over one million will be forced from Russia within a few years. The Hebrew is never a beggar. He has always kept the law, life by toil, often under severe and oppressive civil restrictions. It is also true that no race, sect, or class has more fully cared for its own than the Hebrew race. But the sudden transfer of such a multitude under conditions that tend to strip them of their small accumulations and to depress their energies and courage is neither good for them nor for us. The banishment, whether by direct decree or by not less certain indirect methods, of so large a number of men and women is not a local question. A decree to leave one country is in the nature of things an order to enter another, some other. 
This consideration, as well as the suggestion of humanity, furnishes ample ground for the remonstrances which we have presented to Russia, while our historic friendship for that government cannot fail to give the assurance that our representations are those of a sincere well-wisher. The annual report of the Maritime Canal Company of Nicaragua shows that much costly and necessary preparatory work has been done during the year in the construction of shops, railroad tracks, and harbor piers and breakwaters, and that the work of canal construction has made some progress. I deem it to be a matter of the highest concern to the United States that this canal, connecting the waters of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, and giving to us a short-water communication between our ports upon those two great seas, should be speedily constructed and at the smallest practicable limit of cost. The gain in freights to the people and the direct saving to the government of the United States in the use of its naval vessels would pay the entire cost of this work within a short series of years. The report of the Secretary of the Navy shows the saving in our naval expenditures which would result. The senator from Alabama, Mr. Morgan, in his argument upon this subject before the Senate at the last session, did not overestimate the importance of this work when he said that the canal is the most important subject now connected with the commercial growth and progress of the United States. If this work is to be promoted by the usual financial methods and without the aid of this government, the expenditures in its interest-bearing securities and stock will probably be twice the actual cost. This will necessitate higher tolls and constitute a heavy and altogether needless burden upon our commerce and that of the world. Every dollar of the bonds and stock of the company should represent a dollar expended in the legitimate and economical prosecution of the work. This is only possible by giving to the bonds the guarantee of the United States government. Such a guarantee would secure the ready sale, at par, of a 3% bond from time to time as the money was needed. I do not doubt that built upon these business methods, the canal would, when fully inaugurated, earn its fixed charges and operating expenses. But if its bonds are to be marketed at heavy discounts, and every bond sold is to be accompanied by a gift of stock, as has come to be expected by investors in such enterprises, the traffic will be seriously burdened to pay interest and dividends. I am quite willing to recommend government promotion in the prosecution of a work which, if no other means offered for securing its completion, is of such transcendent interest that the government should, in my opinion, secure it by direct appropriations from its treasury. A guarantee of the bonds of the canal company to an amount necessary to the completion of the canal could, I think, be so given as not to involve any serious risk of ultimate loss. The things to be carefully guarded are the completion of the work within the limits of the guarantee, the subrogation of the United States to the rights of the first mortgage bondholders for any amounts it may have to pay, and in the meantime, a control of the stock of the company as a security against mismanagement and loss. I most sincerely hope that neither party nor sectional lines 
will be drawn upon this great American project, so full of interest to the people of all our states and so influential in its effects upon the prestige and prosperity of our common country. End of section 5. Recording by Paul Thomas.